Welcome to this sermon podcast from Myo Baptist Church, and thank you for listening to today's message. We pray that God's Word will be an encouragement to you and a reminder that the Bible has all the answers to living a successful and fulfilled life. Again, thanks for listening. We now join the service in progress. Let me begin with a question before we get started with the message this morning. You ever do anything dumb? Nope, nobody in this congregation. I've been confessing my dumb sins here lately to the congregation. Um, This past Friday evening, we had the memorial service here for Linda Carter and her husband Rick, seated right down here, uh, preached her funeral message Friday night, and it was evident that God's grace was with you, Brother Rick. You did an, an outstanding outstanding job there. And we were able to host a reception afterwards back in the the ministry center. And uh, we were back there and uh, kind of in the middle of the reception, a lady comes out and gets everybody's attention and she holds up a set of keys. And she said, "Uh, can I have your attention? Everybody gets quiet. And she, she, now listen to what she said. Listen carefully to what she said. She said, I found this set of Ford keys in the ladies' restroom. Okay, So I stand up and I check my pockets, make sure they're not my keys. <laughs> and I wouldn't have even realized how dumb that was were it not for Jim Houghton. Thank you, Jim, for pointing that out to me later. <laughs> so, yeah, I, that's dumb. But I tell you what, it, 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 would, it is not dumb to believe in the resurrection. It is not dumb. It's the smartest thing you will ever do. And we want to consider this morning the meaning of the resurrection. There's a lot of folks these days that know about the resurrection, but they really don't know a lot about the resurrection. We begin back about 2,000 years ago when there was the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. He grew up and he begins preaching and teaching in a way that the world had never heard before. And he was getting an awful lot of attention. Crowds came to hear him, and crowds came to see him as well, because in addition to the preaching and teaching that he had never heard before, he was able to do miracles that they had never seen before. But not all of the people appreciated that. Not everybody appreciated that, particularly for whatever reason, the religious crowd, probably because they were simply jealous. They thought he was an imposter, and they wanted him dealt with. So they bring up these false charges against him, and they go to the Roman governor. You see, Israel was an occupied nation at that time, and they could not execute this man on their own, and that's what they wanted done. They hated Jesus that much, but they couldn't do it because they're an occupied country. To have him executed, they had to appeal to the Roman governor at that time. And we have here, and I want to emphasize this, an eyewitness account of what happened. Folks, this isn't myth. This is an eyewitness account documented that was written back at this time and has just simply been preserved through these 2,000 years. We, we have, in fact, in the four Gospels, four different eyewitness accounts. If one isn't good enough for you, but we're going to focus on one, and that's the account of Matthew. 
Let's pick it up in the story where the Pharisees, the religious crowd, bring Jesus before the governor because they want him gone. Pilate, the governor, says to these men, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say to him, let him be crucified. And the governor, and really he doesn't have, you know, a pony in the race, so he he doesn't care, it doesn't matter to him. So the governor said, why? What evil hath he done? He's more open-minded than the Pharisees. But they cried out the more, saying, let him be crucified, let him be executed, if you will. And when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult or a big deal was made, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. He was more open-minded than them. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them. Barabbas was another prisoner that he had, because all this is happening at the Passover. And it was customary at the Passover that some convict, some criminal be released. And he was willing to release Jesus to them, but they said, No, we want Barabbas. We want Jesus executed. So then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, had beat him with a whip on his back, bloody, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. It's bad enough that the religious Pharisees of the day wanted Jesus executed. Now you have these Roman soldiers who they also don't have a pony in the race, if you will, they're just going to humiliate this man. It, this man. It just shows the cruelty that can occupy human hearts. Verse number 29, And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that, they had mocked him. They took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. They mocked him. They made fun of him. Now, folks, that's bad enough if it's merely a man. This is the creator God of the universe they are mocking. This is God in the flesh. This is a loving God coming to man to redeem them. And they are mocking, spitting on, putting a crown of thorns on the head of the God-man, Jesus Christ. You say, how do you know he was a God-man? Well, let's read on. We skip ahead to verse number 45. Now from the sixth hour, he's on the cross now. He's on the cross, been nailed to the cross There was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This God-man is on the cross. And God himself is turning his back on Jesus. He had to because Jesus came for a purpose, to pay for all of our sins. 
And every vile thing that's been done by you or by me was cast upon him. And he felt all the agony, the pain, and the shame that any one of us would feel under the same circumstances. Some of them that stood there, when they had heard that, said, This man called for Elias. In verse number 48, And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. They're still mocking him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. He died there that day on that cross. We skip ahead a little further in the story. And when the even or evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body be delivered. Sure, you can have him. I don't care. He's probably sipping wine and whatever. He said, yeah, take him. It doesn't matter to me. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his, way, in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher, to the grave, and he departed. And soldiers were placed there because there was some suspicion that maybe some of these disciples would come and try to steal the body and to fake the resurrection of Jesus. So soldiers were put there on guard to make sure that didn't happen. So we skip ahead again. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. These are faithful followers of Jesus to see the sepulcher, to see the grave. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. Verse number four. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men, the people that were surrounding, that were guarding the tomb. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye come to seek Jesus which was crucified. Greatest words the world has ever known. He's not here. He's not here. For he is risen. As he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay, where he had been laid, where he had been. What we just read is an eyewitness account of someone who experienced these facts. The Apostle Paul, contemporary at this time, was also convinced that this was true. He had been, like maybe some of you, a doubter. So much so that he was like the Pharisees. He persecuted Christians. He didn't like Christians, didn't want to have anything to do with them, thought they were phony, fake, and misguided. And yet he came, as I hope you will, to be a believer. And he summarizes that whole account when he was talking to a church at Corinth, And he says in verse number 3 of chapter 15, in that letter to those people, he said, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. This is, he's summarizing what I just read. How that Christ, this is a man that 
crucified people that didn't like, that, that believed in Christ, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that's what we celebrate today here at Myo Baptist Church and around the world. We celebrate Easter. What is Easter? It's a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is that meaning? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? Does it, is it just an old story in antiquity that I find interesting, but I'm dismissive of it because, oh, it, it, maybe it was a myth. Maybe it's just a story made up by man. Well, we can understand the meaning of Easter when we answer some important questions this morning. And that's what I want to do with you. I'm trying, I tried to think of questions that you might ask, especially if you don't know about the resurrection, or maybe you know about the resurrection, but you've kind of dismissed it. It doesn't mean anything to you. It hasn't changed your life as it has mine and as it has many people in this room. So we're going to answer three questions this morning. We'll do it quickly. Number one, what was the resurrection all about? Number two, why should you believe the resurrection? And number three, what does it matter to you whether or not you believe in the resurrection? Let's look at those questions real quick this morning. Number one, what was the resurrection all about? Very simply, the resurrection, to summarize it, was about Jesus dying to pay for our sins so that we would not have to spend eternity paying for our own sins in hell. In summary, that's what the resurrection is all about. Let me read that to you again. It's about Jesus dying to pay for our sins, so that we would not have to spend eternity paying for our own sins in hell. Paul explained the resurrection in the letter that he sent to the Corinthians. He explained it also in the letter that he sent to Christians that were living at Rome at that time. And in that letter to the Romans, he's explaining to them, like I'm trying to do with you this morning, what the resurrection was all about. And if you just look in Romans in general, you can see that he starts off, first of all, that it's some bad news. The resurrection first contains some bad news, then the good news. What's the bad news? Well, the bad news is that we're all sinners. Romans 3.23, Paul told those people... For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He's acknowledging something that we all should be able to acknowledge, that we're all sinners. And by sinners, it means we've done bad things in our life. Maybe some terribly bad things, maybe some not so bad things, but bad things nonetheless called sin. And that sin, as Paul told those people then, it brings you short of the glory of God. Because God is perfect. He is holy. He is righteous. He created us for fellowship with him. I mean, when he created the heavens and the earth, and when he created man, he said it is good, and we enjoyed fellowship with him. But Adam and Eve, they sinned by disobeying God, a holy and righteous God. And since then, it's been like a genetic disease passed on from generation to generation down to you and me today. And today, we're sinners. And the problem with that is that breaks that fellowship with God because he's perfect. Now we're sinners. And he was good enough to give us a free will. He didn't make us robots. He he gave us the opportunity to choose to obey him or not to obey him. And we all choose in some way or another to not obey him. We've all sinned and we've come short of the glory of God. And the fellowship and the intimacy that God wanted with 
the pinnacle of his creation, is now severed. And worse news than that, it must be punished. Romans 6.23, the first part of that verse says, for the wages of sin is death. Okay, we get it, we're sinners. But you know, you notice everybody dies. It wasn't intended to be that way. When God created us, I mean, it was forever. It was just fellowship with him, Adam and Eve in the garden, talking with God, it's all good. But sin has to be punished. I mean, a judge that will let a criminal go scot-free, you would condemn that judge. God's holier than that. He cannot let our sin go scot-free. So the wages of sin is death. You notice everybody dies. You know why? Because this book is true. This book tells us why. The the Bible talks about two deaths. It talks about the first death is our physical death. And that, that became possible when Adam and Eve sinned, and it's going on down to every one of us, but it doesn't stop there. The Bible talks about, and we don't have time to reference it, a second death. First death is separation of the the body from the the soul. The, the, The second death is separation from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. That is the proper punishment of sinners. It means separation from God to pay for your sins for all eternity. That is the proper and just penalty for sin. I told you, Paul was going to give them some bad news. But Paul also gave them some very good news. The good news is that God loves you and doesn't want you to go to hell. So he sent his son to take your punishment for you. He told those Romans that in verse number 8 of chapter 5, when he said to them, and Paul knows, but God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ came not to pay for his sins. He didn't sin while he was here on earth. He was the only one that could be a sacrifice for someone else's sin. Because anybody else being punished, they'd be punished for their sins. So Jesus wasn't punished, if you will, for his sin. He was punished for our sins. And that's the good news. God commendeth his love. You know, we're the pinnacle of his creation. And the last thing he wants is to see the pinnacle of his creation separated from him justly for all eternity in hell. Loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. The perfect sacrifice, the willing sacrifice. And the good news is this payment for punishment is available to anyone and everyone. However, it isn't forced upon you. Remember, God gave you a free will. He he didn't make us robots. He could have. He didn't. He gave us a free will. So we can choose to obey him, which is righteousness, or we can choose to disobey him, which is sin. And at the same time, we can choose to accept what Jesus did, or you are perfectly free to reject what Jesus did. But understand, there's a terrible cost. To me, personally, interject a personal opinion. The worst thought I can imagine for myself or anybody else 
is waking up in hell, if you will, realizing you were wrong about all this, and you are condemned for eternity. Not going to be any plea bargain. Not going to be any end to the sentence. For, try to imagine, for eternity. Big price to pay for being wrong. Huge price to pay. But that's for people that only reject the good news. Because Paul went on to say to those Romans in verse number 9 of chapter 10, because you're, you're a free moral agent, that's the way he made you. It's your choice. You can accept Jesus, you can reject him. How do I accept him? What, what do I need to do? Tell me right now, pastor. Okay. Verses 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You will not have to pay that penalty. Jesus paid it on you. I'm not going to force it on you. I offer it to you as a free gift. It's up to you to decide whether you want it or not. But if you'll take it, it is yours. You'll be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, why should you believe the resurrection? Because of the trustworthiness of the Bible. You should believe it. Understand, there are people that will tell you that, well, that resurrection account and what the preacher says, you you, you can't believe that. There are people that will tell you the Bible is filled with mistakes and contradictions. No, it's not. Have you ever read it? Probably not. Certainly not all of it. They say that the Bible was a man-made book. Nothing could be further from the truth. These are are people that that are speaking, I, I don't mean to be ugly, they're speaking from ignorance. They don't know what they're talking about. Or they say, well, the Bible is just filled with bloodshed and stories of greed, deception, violence, immorality. It's a story about life. Doesn't that just describe life? That, That certainly describes today. Understand, people that will tell you these things put you in great peril if you believe them because they are simply not true. Now, you may say, well, you know, Pastor, you you don't have any credibility, though, if this is true. I mean, look, 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 look. There, you remember Jim Baker and all the controversy about him and Jimmy Swaggart and all the controversy about him and there's arguing among denominations and, you know, I've known some very bad hypocritical Christians. Folks, I'm not asking you to look at any of them this morning. I'm asking you to look at Jesus and he won't disappoint. Don't be distracted by looking at me or looking at anybody in this room that may have failed you. You look at Jesus, folks, and every claim came true. Every prophecy came true. You'd be a fool to ignore him. Don't be distracted by things here on earth that we somehow managed to mess up. Folks, you know this. There's bad plumbers. You use plumbers. There's bad mechanics. You use mechanics. There's bad Christians. But that doesn't nullify Jesus. I'm asking you to look at him this morning. And when you consider him, you will find no fault with him. Why should you believe the resurrection? Because the trustworthiness of the Bible. It's a miraculous book. There there is no other book like the Bible. It is a miraculous book. 
The unity in this book is miraculous, written by over 40 authors over a matter of 1,500 years, men who never met each other, and yet it is perfect harmony and perfect unity. No other book can come close to making such a claim. The fulfilled prophecies in this book, prophecies about Jesus, prophecies about Jerusalem that were made hundreds of years before they happened, yet they happened. The scientific accuracy of this book. This book was claiming things hundreds and hundreds and in some cases thousands of years before they were verified by science. For example, for centuries, for thousands of years, people thought that the earth was flat. The Bible, since its inception, has talked about the circle of the earth, indicating the earth is round before scientists even came to that conclusion. You can trust this book because it's a powerful book. The ability to change lives. You've all heard the song Amazing Grace. John Newton was a man that wrote that song. He lived a reprobate lifestyle like you would not believe till Jesus got a hold of him. Change nations. The United States of America and England back in the, 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 the past are, have been the two of the most blessed nations on the history, uh, 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 in the history of the world. Change nations based upon a people believing this book. Change history. How did we go from the Dark Ages to the Renaissance? Can you say the Reformation and the printing press and the spreading of God's word? You can't overlook the evidence for the trustworthiness of God's word that tells us all about the resurrection of Christ. It is a revered book. I could give you so many quotes from so many different people. Let me just share with you a few. The world-renowned writer Charles Dickens said the New Testament is the very best book that has ever that ever was or ever will be known in the world. Sir Isaac Newton, who is considered to be the greatest scientist and perhaps the greatest mind that ever lived, he said there are more sure marks of authenticity in the Bible than in any profane or worldly history. Queen Victoria of England That book, the Bible, accounts for the supremacy of England. England has become great and happy by the knowledge of the true God through Jesus Christ. John Adams, I think second president of the United States. I've examined all religions and the result is that the Bible is the best book in the world. And probably a little known fact, the original John D. Rockefeller. Do you know that's one of the godliest men that's ever lived in the United States? read his Bible daily, taught Sunday school, was very philanthropic in his giving. John Rockefeller, we can never learn too much of his will towards us, too much of his messages and his advice. The Bible is his word, and its study gives at once the foundation for our faith and an inspiration to battle onward in the fight against the tempter. You go up against the Bible's account of the resurrection. You're going to be clashing with people that are probably smarter than you and me and all the other IQs in this room combined. That is compelling. Why should you believe the resurrection? Because it's it's an eyewitness account. You know, you go to court and people talk about hearsay, and hearsay isn't even allowed to be presented as evidence. But you bring in an eyewitness And that is the pinnacle of credibility. The four Gospels, which each describe the the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, each from its own unique perspective, are eyewitness accounts. That's indisputable. And in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says this, 
For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now remember, this man was a doubter. He was a critic. He was an enemy. And he says, and that he was buried and that he arose again the third day according to the Scriptures, proving who he said he was. And then he starts the list, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep, some had passed away that had seen him. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due age. So we know what the resurrection was all about, Jesus coming to pay for our sins so that you wouldn't have to. We've given you ample evidence this morning of why you should believe the resurrection. You, it is a foolish position to think that it did not happen. But lastly, let's ask the personal question, what does it matter to you whether or not you believe in the resurrection? The difference is, if you put your faith and trust in a resurrected Savior, you're going to spend eternity in heaven you will be saved from that penalty of eternity in hell. Again, let's read them again. We've read it already. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth. What? In Jesus, in his resurrection. Believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. However, if you refuse to believe in the resurrected Savior, you will spend eternity in hell. John 3.17 For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not, I hope that's not describing you, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And here's the problem. And this is the condemnation that light, that is Jesus, is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Don't love your evil deeds over Jesus. Be the worst mistake you've made ever. And and Paul explains why people, why why doesn't everybody believe? Because they like their sin. They like their selfish, self-righteous ways comes with a big price. Let's conclude with this. I found this and I want to share it with you. A few quotes are quoting a bit of a passage and we're done. Death knocks at every door. Eventually its long shadow will fall on each of us. The Christian's answer to death is not found in ignoring it or fearing it, but rather in facing it. Christians can face death because we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. 
And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then the question is asked, believest thou this? If you say no, I don't believe that this morning, please, out of the sincere heart, understand the seriousness of what you're concluding and the error of what you're concluding. They go on to say the Christian's answer to death is not found in ignoring it or fearing it, but rather in facing it. Are you able to face the reality of your own death? Easter proclaims that Christ has conquered death. He has passed through it. Therefore, the only way to be victorious over death is to trust in the living Christ, who is the only person who has defeated death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees our resurrection. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What was the meaning of the resurrection? We've tried to answer that this morning. The resurrection was about Jesus dying to pay for our sins so that we would not have to spend eternity paying for our own sins in hell, but could spend eternity in heaven. Let's stand, please, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. For those of you who are believers, those of you who have accepted Christ as your Savior, my prayer was that this would be a reminder of your journey and how blessed you are. Where you were contrasted with where you are and even more so with where you're going. And may this be a poignant reminder of God's love for you. But I realized also in preparation that There might be someone here this morning who, for whatever reason, has never believed. And we've tried to put forth a case from God's word and from reason and even logic this morning that it just makes sense to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. What happened 2,000 years ago really happened. We have eyewitness accounts. Please don't love your sin more than you do Jesus today. It comes with an unimaginable price tag. Come to Jesus Christ. He will set you free from those sins. He'll give you a new life, a new joy, a new peace, true peace, true joy, true hope, true happiness. To live for for Jesus Christ and trust Him as your Savior isn't to sacrifice. It isn't to suffer. It's to be set free from your passions from, from the, the passions of this world. It's to know true joy. It's to know true peace in your heart. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, let me encourage you. I'm going to ask you to do something. It's rather bold, but nobody's looking. Just me. Step out of your seat. Make your way to the front. And I'll put you with somebody who can show you how you can become saved, as Paul said. Saved from the destiny that awaits you otherwise. A destiny that we don't want to think about. You're here this morning in just a second. Brother Tom's going to begin to sing. When he begins to sing, the invitation is open. If you'd like to trust Christ as your Savior, you come. We'll take you aside to a private place. Brother Tom's going to sing. Softly and tenderly, Jesus Let go of the pew in front of you and... Let God take over. For you and for no one's looking me. around but me. 
Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and that you were encouraged by God's Word. If you have any questions about Baptist Church, please contact us anytime. You can find contact information on our website at myobaptistchurch.com. Thanks for listening.